your business can gain commercial insight, key networking opportunities, and be part of the discussion as it happens in the global aeronautical and aerospace sector. Learn how to contribute to best practices and support the world's largest body of aeronautical and aerospace professionals by joining the Royal Aeronautical Society Corporate Partner Scheme. Visit www.aerosociety.com membership. We are proud to present the following lecture. All content published by the Royal Aeronautical Society is subject to our website terms of use. Visit aerosociety.com for more information. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark King. Yes, thank you very much, Phil. The, uh, the Liverpool thing is not something I emphasise quite so much as I used to at the moment. It's, uh... <laughs> right. Well, looks like we're good to go. Um, well, good evening, everybody. And uh, first of all, I'd like to thank the Royal Aeronautical Society for inviting me to give a prestigious annual Brabazon Lecture, and, and before I begin, I would like to say a few words about the great man himself. Moore Brabazon was a true pioneer. He figured in the birth of aviation in the UK, and he also figured in the birth of Rolls-Royce. Born in 1884, he went on to read engineering, engineering at Cambridge, but did not graduate, reportedly because he spent his university holidays working for Charles Rolls as an unpaid mechanic. Now, I can't advocate anyone dropping out of university for any student today, especially one fortunate enough to be studying at Cambridge. But if you are going to drop out, this is as good a reason as any as I can think of. He learned to fly in 1908, went on to become the first resident Englishman to make an officially recognized aeroplane flight in England on the 2nd of May, 1909. Then, in an effort to prove that pigs could indeed fly, he put a small porker in a wastebasket tied it to a wing strut of an aeroplane in what may well have been the first live cargo flight by aeroplane. In 1910, he became the first person to qualify as a pilot in the UK and was awarded the Royal Aero Club Aviators Certificate No. 1. However, only four months later, his friend Charles Rolls was killed in a flying accident and Moore Brabazon's wife persuaded him to give up flying. But with the outbreak of war, he returned to flying and joined the Royal Flying Corps serving with distinction on the Western Front. And in the 1920s, Moore Brabazon went on to become an MP. And in Winston Churchill's wartime government, he was appointed Minister of Transport and went on to become Minister of Air Aircraft Production in 1941. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Brabazon in 1942 and then chaired the Brabazon Committee, which planned to develop the post-war British aircraft industry. Now, he was involved in the production of the Bristol Brabazon, a giant airliner that first flew powered by eight Bristol, later Rolls-Royce, radial piston engines on the 4th of September 1949. The Brabazon was then, and still is, the largest aeroplane built in Britain. Sadly, and particularly sadly for the engine manufacturer of the eight engines per aircraft, the Brabazon <laughs> never became a commercial success. And as a lesson to us all, at the age of 70, he was still riding the crest of run. A true pioneer, character and aviation legend. So it's a great privilege to present the Brabazon Lecture 
uh, to speak to you all at the Royal Aeronautical Society and to stand in the spot uh, that has seen great men and women of aviation describe every aspect and method of moving through the ether imaginable. But today, I'd like to indulge in a different type of travel, that of time travel. I'm sure everyone can remember what they were doing at the millennium. If you can't, then I suspect that it's not that it was too long ago, it's more rather as a result of what you were doing in the hours leading up to midnight. Certainly I remember it well for the impending birth of my second daughter, who is now cleverer, infinitely more fashionable than me, and who most embarrassingly seems to be consistently beating me at tennis. She has certainly learned a lot in those 12 or 13 years. Have we, I wonder? It's said that those who fail to learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. Well, I'm afraid that one immediate lesson of history is that usually we don't learn from the lessons of history. And my first lesson is, don't believe anyone who tells you the world is going to end imminently. The end of the world is nigh, because it isn't. You will remember that we were all told, through 1999, that the Y2K bug was going to end life as we know it. Aircraft were going to fall from the sky, power was going to fail, and the very fabric of civilization was going to collapse. In the end, of course, IT consultants made an awful lot of money, and there were some very fine fireworks displays. So for those people, although I doubt there are any in this room, who believe that the Mayans were right and that the world will end on the 21st of December 2012, it won't. The world won't end. I can confirm that all doomsayers who have ever predicted the end of the world have been wrong. It has never ended. And I'm so confident that it won't end next month that if there are any minds in the room, I'll be willing to place a large bet that I'm right. <laughs> but the world has changed and will continue to change, and it's these changes that I want to discuss. Now, frankly, the millennium actually feels like yesterday. So as a reminder, in 2000, the best-selling book was The Brethren by John Grisham. And the most successful film was Mission Impossible 2. This was a pre-9-11 world where the good guy always triumphed over the bad guy, right always won over wrong, and where the hero always untied the heroine from the rail track in the nick of time. And here's the most successful book and the most successful film of the last 12 months. The film was Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. And the book was Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> now, although nothing much has changed, I understand the heroine remains tied up for large parts of that story as well. Um, <clears throat> now, do you remember these great world leaders of 2000? In China, <coughs> Zhu Rongji has been replaced by Wen Jibao. In the UK, Tony Blair has been replaced by David Cameron. In the US, Bill Clinton has been replaced by Barack Obama, and you may think, based on the last few days, that it may be Bill Clinton has won again, but actually it is Barack Obama who's won it again. Um, and in Russia, Vladimir Putin has been replaced by, well, Vladimir Putin. Um, so what, what has changed? Um, well, this has changed. In 2000, the price of aviation fuel was 80 cents a gallon, where today it's about $3 a gallon, and it seems set never to return to those previous levels. This dramatic increase in the price of all airlines' major cost component has meant that fuel has become fully 50% of the operating cost of a long-haul flight. 
In turn, this has driven the demand for technology hard across all aspects of aviation. In 2000, Airbus was starting to see significant fleets of A330s in service. It was developing the four-engined A340 and was dreaming of the also four-engined A380. Brabazon would have been proud. At Boeing, the 777 was appearing in volume. And interestingly, they were struggling with a decision on which engine to select to power their new 777. Now, a lesson of history here is that Boeing could have made a better choice, certainly where Rolls-Royce is concerned. Um, and here we are in 2012 with Boeing struggling with a decision on which engine to select to power their even newer 777. So let's hope the good guy triumphs in the sequel of this movie. Back in 2000, there were just two versions of our Trent engine in service. Each was flying about 500,000 hours a year. And we had orders on the books for a few hundred more of each. And here we are in 2012 with five variants of the Trent in service and one more, the Trent XWB, under development. The engine family represents the state of the art in aviation technology, with the Trent XWB having been confirmed in flight as comfortably the most efficient large aero engine flying in the world today. The Trent family will fly 8 million hours this year. That's equivalent to 10,000 return flights to the moon. And of these Trent engines, each one is either the market leader on its aircraft, the launch engine, or both. And we have orders for 3,500 more of them in a civil aerospace order book that exceeds 50 billion pounds. And adding in the other engines in the Rolls-Royce civil aerospace portfolio, powering single-aisle, regional jet, corporate aircraft, means that as I speak, approximately 200,000 people, roughly the population of Derby, are in flight powered by Rolls-Royce engines. And Rolls-Royce as a company has changed almost beyond recognition. In 2000, we were still manufacturing our turbine discs at the original site set up in Derby by Mr. Rolls and Mr. Royce. We now manufacture them a few miles down the road in this state-of-the-art facility. And we used to assemble our large engines in places like this. We now assemble them in advanced facilities that look like this. Since 2000, Rolls-Royce has invested more than three billion pounds in new manufacturing techniques and state-of-the-art facilities around the world. And we've doubled our capacity with large engine assembly facilities in Derby and a new site in Singapore, where the first engine to be built was celebrated by some high-profile visitors recently. And of all the things I've done in my career at Rolls-Royce, this is the only one which has impressed my 12-year-old daughter. <laughs> And of course, it's not just our civil aerospace business, which, is, which represents less than half of Rolls-Royce's total sales, which has grown. Coupled with the 160 customers in our defense business, the Rolls-Royce equipment installed on more than 30,000 ships, and the compression and power equipment we supply for onshore and offshore oil and gas applications, Rolls-Royce's revenues have more than doubled since 2000. But coming back to the lessons of history, an interesting question to ask is, what is the greatest technological change since 2000? Now, as you'd expect, I could launch a very good argument for the Trent 1000 or the Trent XWB, but uh, no, magnificent as the Trent family is, both in its technology and its commercial success, it doesn't actually get my vote for the greatest technological achievement. Could it be graphene? 
the Nobel Peace Prize, the Nobel Prize winning material developed at Manchester University? Um, no, I don't think so. What about the Large Hadron Collider? Surely the biggest and most expensive science, science experiment in the history of man. But even with its discovery of the Higgs boson, it doesn't win my accolade. Now, my proposal for the greatest technological advance has to be this, the digital revolution. The impact on the world is, as a whole is too enormous to even try to characterize, so I'm going to confine myself to the impact on aviation. Where would the low-cost carriers have been without the digital revolution? Without the ability for travelers to find the lowest price for travel and accommodation, avoiding the need to go through a middleman, to check in online and get to the gate without having to interact with a single human being? Can you imagine how much worse for the UK alone would be if we still had to host all stag night and hen parties in Blackpool or South End, <laughs> rather than exporting our drink-fueled weekends across Europe? It means aviation-related ideas can be shared and problem-solved and deals struck in seconds by emails and text messages while waiting to remove your shoes, belt, laptop, phone, and embarrassing toiletry items at security. But more dramatically, it means that in our operations center, we can track each and every engine as it flies around the world, monitoring its operation for any in-service anomaly. A good example of this was on an aircraft powered by our Trent engines flying across the Pacific to the west coast of the USA. Shortly after takeoff, it suffered a lightning strike. The pilot correctly opted to continue the flight as all the measurements on the cockpit were normal. But under standard operating rules, upon arrival at its destination, there would have been a full inspection of the engine which suffered the strike to check for internal damage. This is a process that, inv that involves opening all the cowls, examining the internals of the engine via a series of boroscope inspections. It's a lengthy process, and it would mean the return flight would have had to be cancelled. This cancellation would have left hundreds of passengers stranded and the aircraft and its crew in the wrong place, resulting almost certainly in significant financial costs to the airline. But with our operations center systems, we were able to download and inspect all the available engine internal parameters, and while the flight was still on its way to the US, we were able to confirm that the return flight could take place with only a minor inspection that could be accomplished within the normal turnaround time. So, well before the aircraft had landed, we dispatched a trained engineer to meet the plane. He completed his inspection, and without any passengers knowing the drama that had taken place, the aircraft took off at the appointed time. But there are more challenging sides to the rise of the digital age. It was Andy Warhol who said eventually everyone would have 15 minutes of fame. And in many ways, thanks to the digital revolution and Simon Cowell, that has come to pass. In the year 2000, if a technical issue arose in flight which did cause the aircraft to divert or return to its origin, then the passengers would typically be accommodated by the airline, plied with a little bit of champagne, booked on a flight the next day, returning home maybe 24 hours later. And they may have told a few friends about their adventure. To the extent it did make the press, the aviation trade media would typically be factual, interested in the technical background, and the daily newspapers were more likely to report the human story, but in a reasonably accountable way. But in 2012, a video of the event is typically uploaded onto YouTube by one of the passengers as the aircraft is taxiing to the gate. The reporting and the comment on the event is not confined to the accountable media, but to anyone with an iPhone or a laptop and with the ability to hide behind a pseudonym, whether they're a professor of aviation or simply an opinionated individual with no actual understanding. 
The event on a Qantas A380 in 2010 when a Rolls-Royce engine failed was a gra very graphic example of the new world in which we live. A discussion of the event was viral on the internet while the aircraft was still in the air. And comments and opinions posted since are too numerous to count. In fact, the final report on the incident is still to be issued. So even now, almost two years to the day after the event, we, the engine manufacturer, are precluded from discussing details of the failure. So a key lesson here is that this industry is now hostage to hyped mass coverage of every event, whether accurate or inaccurate. And at this point, it's worth pointing out that air travel has grown dramatically since 2000. Today, there are more than 30 million flights every year to around 4,000 different de destinations. So 80,000 times a day an aircraft takes off, each carrying on average well over 100 passengers, the vast majority of whom will be carrying smartphones. Now, fortunately, as an industry, we've not been standing still in the face of this change. The aviation industry has driven a relentless improvement in aircraft reliability since 2000. Rolls-Royce engines today are a factor of three more reliable than at the millennium. Today, you have to fly continuously for 18 years to experience an in-flight event. And all this is borne out in the fact that most commercial pilots retire, <coughs> having never experienced one of these events. And most Trent engines will actually finish their lives, having spent their time simply generating thrust, flawlessly. Two weeks ago marked the one-year anniversary of the newest Trent engine to enter service, the Trent 1000 on the Boeing 787 Dreamliner. Over 9,000 flights have been completed in that year and the engine has demonstrated better than 99.9% .9 dispatch reliability already. That means less than one flight in a thousand has had its departure delayed by an engine technical issue. The in-flight performance has been 100% flawless. How are these reliability achievements being achieved? Well, the engine health monitoring I've already mentioned has been a key part of this. But so has the 8.8 .8 billion pounds Rolls-Royce has spent since 2000 on fundamental research and development of key aerodynamic, aerothermal, materials and mechanical technologies within the engine. And the digital revolution has also played its part here too. Since 2000, computing power has increased dramatically by a factor of approximately 25. We now perform complex three-dimensional computational fluid dynamics such that fan blades that used to look like this now look like this. These are the blades which deliver 90% of the thrust produced by a large Trent engine. At takeoff, the centrifugal force is the equivalent of suspending a locomotive train from the tip of each blade. In the year 2000, Rolls-Royce manufactured the most efficient fan blades in the industry. We still do today. Not just aerodynamically, but in terms of their weight. They're made from titanium and they're hollow and they're in fact lighter than our competitors' composite blades designed to do the same job. Now this increase in computational technology allows us to, make, to model some of the most complex events before we ever test them with real hardware. Now on the left-hand side of this chart is a computer prediction of what will happen in the unlikely event that one of the van blades is released from its disk while in the process of experiencing a centrifugal force equivalent to the weight of a locomotive train. And on the right is a video of what actually happened in the test. So firstly, let me show you what the computer prediction predicted will happen. That's the blade released. 
and damaging the second blade. And it gives you a, a precise sense of exactly how much blade will be lost and which direction the debris will fly and all the mechanical stresses and strains within the whole unit. So let me now run the video on the left at the same time as the video on the right, which is the actual event. And the blade is released just as it passes 12 o'clock. So the alignment between prediction and reality is incredible, especially when you think that all of that that I've shown takes place in three hundredths of a second. So in summary, since 2000, the world and the aviation industry has seen extraordinary changes. And my daughter is still not even a teenager. So why did I spend so much time dwelling on the past? Because I want to speculate a little bit about what 2025 will look like. And if I hadn't illustrated what has happened in the last 12 years, I doubt you'd believe what I'm going to suggest is going to happen. Now, I guess I must start by stressing the famous cautionary words of Niels Bohr, the physicist who pointed out that making forecasts is always difficult, especially about the future. And very recently, this sentiment has been backed up by the words, I don't make predictions, and I never will, from that well-known exponent of metaphysics, Mr. Wayne Rooney. <laughs> However, I'm going to, take, going to take courage from none other than Brabazon himself, who in 1959 predicted that everybody would soon be carrying a TV in their pocket. Clearly a man with extraordinary vision. A great shame he wasn't similarly correct in his preference on the number of engines per aircraft. <laughs> So, firstly, what will the world look like in 2025? Well, I'm not going to make too many wild predictions, but I think in China we will see another change of leadership. I think really in the UK there is only one real candidate. <laughs> uh, I was torn on the US, but I decided between Brad and Angelina I would go for Brad. And in Russia, you guessed it. <laughs> oh, so anyway, here are some more serious predictions. Uh, the world population will have increased by another billion. China will have the largest GDP. Asia will be the home to around two-thirds of the world's population. We will have experienced more regional conflicts, pandemics, major natural disasters, and a couple more recessions, or maybe just one long 12-year one. <laughs> The, uh, the number of aircraft flying will have grown to about 100,000, with 1.5 million people in the air at any one time. By 2025, we'll be seeing annual passenger flight volumes equivalent to more than half of the world's population. Now, clearly, this doesn't mean that half the people in the world will be air passengers. Air travel will still be concentrated in those with enough disposable income to buy a ticket, the growing middle classes of the world. So what won't happen? Well, we won't have anti-gravity, or time travel, or robot butlers. I think commercial suborbital craft may well be in operation, but more as an advanced fairground ride than a tool of commerce. <coughs> the idea of using hydrogen as a fuel in aviation will still be a pipe dream for those who don't really understand the complexities of fuel system design. The flying wing or blended wing body will still be presented at conferences as having potential for the future, just as it has done for the past five or six decades. B2 
because I think in 2025, aircraft will be very recognizable. The tube and the wing will still be the only design style. Kerosene will be the predominant fuel, possibly assisted in some proportion by sustainable biofuels. And crucially for me, the gas turbine will still be the most efficient and energy-dense power solution for aviation. Fuel price will not have fallen, and technology will still be at a premium. Now, I don't know exactly how many Rolls-Royce Trent engines will be in service. What I do know is we started delivering them well before the year 2000, and we've delivered approximately 2,000 in the last 17 years. But we will deliver, definitely, the next 2,000 in the next five years, at which point we'll be using a significant proportion of our 500 to 600 engine per year assembly capacity. And I forecast that we will be delivering large engines which will be approaching 25% more fuel efficient in 2025 than they were in 2000, saving a staggering $50 billion per year for the aviation industry and preventing 150 million tons of CO2 being created. And that we will still be improving efficiency at a rate of around 1% per year from engine technology alone. I also predict that there will be a new Rolls-Royce large engine in service, and it won't be a Trent. It will have composite fan blades that, combined with a composite containment system, will reduce the weight of each fan module by a further 800 pounds. That's the equivalent of eight average passengers on a twin-engine aircraft. Well, maybe only six by 2025. <laughs> the, the outside of the engine will be devoid of electrical harnesses with electrical connections embedded in composite rafts, saving more weight and improving reliability and cost. Jumped ahead. And the internals of the engine will have an array of new technologies and materials, including ceramic matrix composites and bearings, which are ceramic rather than the conventional metal that is universally used today. These will ensure that the components will be capable of surviving in the arduous conditions that exist at the heart of our engines, temperatures equivalent to half that of the surface of the sun, and pressures equivalent to those found half a mile down in the ocean. Instead of using a complex system of boroscopes to examine the interior of our engines, we'll be using ultra-small cameras already installed in the walls of the engine. And instead of using wires to transfer the signal from the instrumentation inside the engine, we'll be using Wi-Fi. And this instrumentation will feed a control system that anticipates increased thrust demands based on where and what the aircraft is doing in its flight. Now, you'll hear a lot more about this new large engine in the next few months, and I would love to spill the beans more today, but I'm sure you'll understand there is a degree of commercial sensitivity uh, such that I can't even disclose the name. But now, perhaps the most bold prediction, because in 2025, the number of flights every day will be so enormous the speed of information flow so fast and the tolerance of the traveling public to any kind of delay or disruption, frankly, non-existent, I foresee a world in which all engine maintenance is planned and engines don't fail, ever. Flying will certainly be safer and less disrupted by technical issues. Oh, and I suspect Heathrow may still not have a third runway. <laughs> Um, so before I get myself into any more trouble, I will stop making predictions for 2025 because by then I will have lived through my daughter's teenage years, which is frankly a much more terrifying prospect than anything I've talked about. So we've come a long way, and so have our partners in the aerospace industry who make the aircraft and all the systems because, of course, an engine is just an engine until it powers an airframe. 
and then you've got yourself an aircraft. Put some passengers in it and you've got an economic proposition, find a couple of airports and you've got an airline. Get a few airlines together and before you know it, you have a global transportation system. And in 2025, aviation will be an even bigger driver of the world's industry. Travel, will once, will, which was once the prerogative of the affluent, will be even more democratized and a significant force for change in the middle classes of the so-called emergent nations. This industry will still be attracting some of the brightest and best to its doors, and they will continue to challenge the laws of physics by developing increasingly amazing technologies. They will seek out innovative business solutions to help the world shrink its lines of communication. And Rolls-Royce and the UK will be at the centre of all that activity, pushing back the boundaries, driving down the costs, continuing on the journey that more Brabazon himself began more than 100 years ago. Thank you. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.